Good morning. Uh, I just got back. I've been running too to get over here. I've been, I just got back from uh, World Economic <coughs> Forum, and we talked to a lot of the uh, world's financial leaders. And I was thinking what I would tell you about it, but then I realized it's all off the record, and so I'm not supposed to say anything to you. Uh, I was going to talk in instead today about uh, about insurance, which is uh, one of the major risk management institutions that uh, uh, that uh, is not always considered part of finance because people think of finance and insurance as separate. Should I start? A is that better? I have to turn up. The oh, now it's up. <laughs> okay. So. Uh, it's all about, we, we talked about basic principles of risk management uh, in the preceding lecture. It's all the same for in finance and insurance, and yet we tend to consider them as separate businesses. That's partly, I think, an accident of history, and it's partly a product of regulation because of certain ideas that we'll come to in a few minutes that has kept the insurance industry separate from other financial industries. But the basic, last period we talked about the mean variance risk management uh, problem and about the capital asset pricing model. That's fundamental to insurance as well. The basic idea is pooling of risks uh, and preventing people from being subjected to extreme risks through the concept of risk pooling. So what I wanted to start today is talking about insurance, uh, starting with the concept of insurance. Uh, and then I wanted to reiterate a theme of this course, that financial institutions are inventions. They're structures that uh, someone had to design and make work right. Sometimes they don't work right. Uh, then I wanted to move to a particular example of insurance. Uh, which was, uh, until recently, the biggest insurance company in the world, uh, called the American International Group, uh, or AIG. Uh, and it's particularly important that, uh, that we talk about this example, because on March 2, we have the uh, former CEO of AIG, uh, Maurice Hank Greenberg, coming to our class. So uh, I thought it's appropriate that we use AIG. Well, not only because it was the biggest insurance company in the world, uh, but also because he's coming here. So, uh, and then I want to talk about um, uh, regulation of insurance, that the insurance industry has always been subject to government regulation. I'll talk about types of insurance. Uh, your chapter in Fabozzi et al. Uh, is mostly about types of insurance. So I think you can mostly get that from the textbook, but I wanted to say some things about it. Uh, and then I was going to conclude with uh, thoughts about insurance and how important it is to our lives and what progress it still has to make. So insurance, it doesn't sound like a very exciting topic, does it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to try to make it more exciting. 
I guess you think of the insurance salesman coming knocking on your door. They don't do that so much anymore. They used to go around door to door. And that was a depressing moment when the life insurance salesman came. And if you invited this person into your house, he would tell you about uh, the probability of dying and how, you, how tough it will be on your family, that sort of thing. Um, but to me, I think insurance is, uh, to me, it's an exciting issue because uh, it's about making our lives work. And it's really about preventing horrible catastrophes from, um, and, and it involves mathematical theory that, uh, that underlies the concept. So to me, it's exciting, but I don't know if I can convey that. But the fundamental concept, again, is risk pooling. Um, the, the idea of insurance goes back to ancient Rome, uh, but only in very limited forms. Uh, but the idea of risk pooling is, is, uh, is kind of an obvious one. People uh, form organizations partly to risk pool. Uh, so in ancient Rome, a, form, a common form of insurance was uh, death insurance that would pay funeral bills. And people in the ancient world believed that uh, you had to get a proper burial or your soul would wander forever. Uh, not, uh, so insurance salespeople associated with guilds or business uh, organizations would sell funeral insurance. But they didn't have a very clear idea of the risk pooling concepts. It must have under, underlain their uh, thinking. Uh, but it wasn't until much later that people began to understand the concept. There were, there were uh, examples of insurance throughout ancient and medieval times, but they're very blurred and uh, sparse. I, I remember reading an insurance, supposedly an insurance contract written in Renaissance Italy, translated into English, but it was hardly recognizable to me as an insurance concept contract. They didn't have the concepts done. It seemed to have a lot of religious language in it, uh, which normally we don't think of as something that's part of an insurance contract. But it, it seemed like insurance came in in the 1600s, at the same time that certain concepts of mathematics were, uh, began to be developed. Uh, no, notably, the concept of probability became uh, more widely known in the, in the 1600s. Uh, according to one historian, the oldest known description of the insurance concept um, goes to a, um, uh, goes back to a uh, Count Oldenburg. Actually, it's an anonymous letter to Count Oldenburg written in 1609. And the letter says, why don't we start, I'm, I'm paraphrasing at the moment, why don't we start a fund in which people pay 1% of the value of their home every year in the fund, and then we will use the fund to replace the house if there's a fire. And now quoting this anonymous writer, this writer said he had no doubt that it would be fully proved if a calculation were made of the number of houses consumed by fire within a certain space in the course of 30 years, that the loss would not amount by a good deal to the sum that would be collected in that time. Okay, 
It was just intuitive. He said, there can't be that many fires. And if we collect that amount of money every year, we can pay for all the houses that are burned down. And so he didn't, uh, didn't express any mathematical law, uh, but it's the concept of insurance. You don't find that before that, before 1609. So I guess we don't have uh, any clear statement of insurance before then. Actually, you can find a statement, approximate statement of the law of large numbers. Uh, and I'm thinking of uh, Aristotle, the uh, philosopher. He wrote in, uh, this is uh, in ancient times, and I'm quoting from De Kylo, his book, Aristotle, to succeed in many things or many times is difficult. For instance, to repeat the same throw 10,000 times with the dice would be impossible, whereas to make it once or twice is comparatively easy. So he doesn't have the language of probability, but he knows you can't throw the dice a thousand times and come up with the same number every time. Uh, now we have a probability theory about it. So we know that uh, if you have n events, uh, each occurring with a probability of p, then the average proportion out of the, the, the n events that, uh, that occur, uh, I'm sorry, you have n trials, an event occurring with probability p, then the standard deviation of the proportion of events that uh, occur is p times 1 minus p all over n to the 1 half power. Uh, and that's a theorem from probability theory. Uh, the standard deviation of the proportion of trials for which the event occurred, assuming independence, is given by this. And so you note that it goes down with n. As n increases, it goes down with, the, I should say, the square root of n. Uh, so that means that if n gets very large, if you write a lot of policies, then the probability of deviating from the mean uh, by more than uh, one or two standard deviations becomes very small, which is what Aristotle said. But, uh, but making insurance work as a, um, as a, uh, uh, as a institution to actually protect people against risk is, is, um, is rather difficult to achieve. Um, and that's because it has to, things have to be done right. So let me, let me just remind you, what are the basic types of insurance? This is what Fabozzi talks about. There's life insurance that insures people against early death. Of course, you still die. What it really insures is your family against the loss of a breadwinner, the father or the mother. So you, life insurance is suitably given to families, especially with young children, to protect the children. It's very important. It used to be very important when uh, there was a lot more early deaths. Now very few young people lose their parents, so life insurance has receded in importance. Uh, another example is uh, health insurance. This is insurance, of course, that you get sick and you need medical care. Uh, then there's property and casualty insurance, uh, insuring your house or your car. And then there's um, other kinds of, uh, you might call it investment-oriented products, 
uh, like uh, uh, annuities. Uh, this is a table in your textbook uh, by Fabozzi, which lists these categories of insurance. Uh, but, um, but any of these insurance types are inventions. And I, I want to um, specify that we have the idea that an insurance company could be set up that would, say, insure houses against fires. And we, we just heard it intuitively in this letter to Oldenburg long ago. But to make it work, and to make it work reliably, involves a lot of detail. So it's like, you know, you can think of the idea of making an airplane, but to make it really work, and to make it work safely, is another matter. So, first of all, insurance needs a contract design that specifies risks uh, and excludes risks uh, that are inappropriate. An issue that, moral, that, that insurance companies reach is moral hazard. Something rubbing when they're. <laughs> okay, I'll try not to. <laughs> Wait, what's doing it? It's this one. Oh, okay. Moral hazard is an expression that appeared in the 19th century to refer to the effects of insurance on people's behavior that are undesirable. So, uh, the classic example is you take out fire insurance on your house and then you burn it down deliberately in order to collect on the house. Or another example is you take out life insurance. And then you kill yourself <laughs> to give to support your family. Uh, these are undesirable outcomes, uh, and they they could be fatal to the whole concept of insurance because if you don't control moral hazard, obviously the whole thing is not going to work. So what they do in an insurance contract is they exclude risks that are particularly vulnerable to moral hazard, uh, and so that means they. Um, you would exclude certain causes of death that, that might look like suicide. Uh, you can do other things to control moral hazard than excluding certain causes. You can also make sure that you don't insure the house for more than it's worth. Right? If, if, if someone insures a house there's no, and the insurance does not cover the full value of the house, then there's no incentive to burn it down. You might as well just sell the house, right? No, no point in burning it down if you'll still lose a little bit of money. Uh, so that's one of the problems that insurance companies face. And part of the design of the insurance contract has to prevent moral hazard from becoming excessive. An analogous thing is selection bias. Um, that occurs when shock keeps breaking. Uh, selection bias occurs. When the people who sign up for your contract know that they are higher risk, and so that they then want to, uh, what, for example, health. People who know they are, have a terminal disease and are about to die, they'll all come signing up for your life insurance contract. That will put immense costs on the insurance company, and if they don't control the selection bias, they will, they will have to charge very high premiums. Uh, and that that will force other people who don't know they're going to die out of the business. So, so 
uh, out of buying insurance. And so that's a fundamental problem. That again, something has to be done to define the policy. So one thing you can do is exclude in life insurance certain causes of death that are likely to be known. And you only put on causes of death that, that people wouldn't uh, be able to predict about themselves. Uh, okay. Another aspect of insurance is that you have to have definitions of the very, spe very specific, precise definitions of the loss and what constitutes proof of the insured loss. Uh, if you're not clear about that, there's going to be ambiguities later, which will involve legal wrangling and uh, uh, dissatisfaction. We'll see in, uh, in a minute that these problems are not minor and they keep coming up. That's a constant challenge for the insurance industry. Then we need, third, we need a mathematical model of, of risk pooling. Well, I just wrote one down here, but it might be more complicated in some circumstances. This is assuming independence. And that's, uh, uh, if you don't assume independence, you can do, uh, you can make more complicated models. Then, third, then fourth, you need a collection of statistics on risks and you, to evaluate, uh, and you need to evaluate the quality of those, uh, of those uh, statistics. So for example, in the 1600s, the, the people started collecting mortality tables for the first time. There was no data on ages at death. It began in the 1600s because people were building an insurance industry and they needed to know those things. Then you need a form for the company. What is the insurance company? Who owns it? It could be a corporate form. There are shareholders who are investing in the company and they're taking the risk that some of our policy modeling, our handling of moral hazard or selection bias wasn't right. Um, some insurance companies are mutual rather than share. The, the insurance is run for the benefit of the policyholders and, they're, and they're, they're like a nonprofit in the sense that the founders of the company pay themselves salaries, but the benefits go entirely to the policyholders. Then you need uh, a government design so that the government verifies all of these things about the insurance company. The problem with insurance is that people will pay in for many, many years before they ever collect, right? Well, especially if you're buying life insurance, you hope never to collect. <laughs> uh, uh, and so you don't know whether it's going to work right. That's why you need government regulation. You need government insurance regulators. And that's part of the design of insurance. It doesn't work if you don't have the regulators because you wouldn't trust the insurance company. So uh, these are um, problems that, uh, that um, have inhibited uh, making insurance uh, uh, work. I wanted to give you an, an example. Uh, let me start. I, th I think it makes it more concrete if we start out with talking about a particular example. And I said I was going to talk about AIG. It's a very important example, not only because it was the biggest insurance company, it was also the biggest bailout in the entire uh, subprime cri or financial crisis we've seen now. So, um, and it has an interesting story. So AIG. Okay, this is still, give me a I'm going to move it to the other side. It seems to not do well on my, 
since I'm left-handed. Um, seems to. So AIG, it's an interesting story. It was founded in 1919 in Shanghai. And you wonder why is it called American International Group if it's founded in Shanghai? Uh, it was founded in Shanghai called American Asiatic Underwriters. Uh, and it was founded by uh, Cornelius van der Star. Uh, who was an American who just decided to go to Asia and start an insurance business. Um, Shanghai in 1919 was a world city. It was uh, not really under the Chinese government. It was something like Hong Kong. It, it had um, constituencies representing many different countries. Uh, and so it was a very lively business center. It's kind of interesting that the biggest insurance company in the world emerged from Shanghai. And uh, also one of the biggest banks in the world, HSBC. You know the, uh, you know what HSBC means? They haven't, they don't emphasize it anymore. It's Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank Corporation. So AIG was founded by Mr. Starr in uh, 1919, and uh, started doing an insurance business in China, and moved their headquarters to uh, New York just before Chairman Mao took over China. Uh, and then it became a uh, kind of a Chinese investment company in the United States. Uh, Cornelius van der Star ran the company from 1919 until he died in 1968. So he was CEO for 49 years, a half century. And then when he, just before he died, he appointed uh, Hank Greenberg, who was visit us uh, as the CEO in uh, 1962. So that was 49 years under Starr, and then Greenberg took on and then ran the company until 2005. So it was 37 years under <laughs> Greenberg. So two men ran the company for almost a century. Uh, since 2005, Greenberg is, uh, is, uh, has been succeeded by three CEOs. <laughs> the usual thing, uh, uh, the usual company has, uh, turns over CEOs, but uh, there's another interesting story that we might ask about uh, Hank Greenberg, that uh, he joined the U.S. Army and fought in World War II. And among the people, among his jobs then was to liberate Dachau, which was a, a, a concentration camp. Uh, so, uh, in, um, this was not one of the extermination camps. It was a concentration camp for Jews and others uh, under the Nazis. And uh, the people were starving and dying. It's awful. Uh, and, uh, when um, at, at a Council on Foreign Relations meetings, uh, Greenberg met with uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is the uh, president of Iran. And uh, Ahmadinejad said uh, something about the Holocaust, doubting that it ever happened. Greenberg stood up indignantly and said, it happened. I saw it. I was there. Um, so. Uh, 
It's kind of interesting to me to think about this. There aren't very many people who, this, this is an aside momentarily. Uh, the other person I met who, uh, do you know uh, Jeffrey Hartman, who's a professor here at Yale in literature? Uh, he and his wife, both Jewish, were teenagers during World War II, and uh, Hartman escaped by what were they called kinder transport, but his wife, Renee, was in another concentration camp. Uh, not Dachau, it was uh, in, um, it was in Bratislava. And she was starving to death. And uh, it really happened, by the way, it's awful. Um, and I asked her, why do you think they were starving you to death? And she said, we didn't know. We thought maybe they were keeping us as hostages or something. But, uh, so anyway, we could ask him about, um, about the, uh, about that. Um, so, the, uh, what, what Greenberg, what did these people do? Both Starr and Greenberg created a wide variety of, of risk management products. Uh, it became the largest underwriter of commercial and industrial insurance in the world. Uh, it became a very large automobile insurer uh, and also a travel insurance company. But uh, Greenberg was forced out of the company after 37 years when Elliot Spitzer, who was the attorney general for the state of New York, uh, claimed that there were some irregularities. Uh, and uh, uh, Greenberg was forced to resign. It turns out, though, that nothing that Spitzer said has held up. And so, apparently, Greenberg was uh, innocent of any of the allegations. Uh, the real problem occurred with um, AIG after Greenberg left. So, Greenberg left in 2005. Uh, and then the company absolutely blew up, and it absolutely had to be bailed out. And the reason it had to be bailed out was it was primarily due, almost entirely due to an, a failure of the independence assumption, I would say, that underlay their risk modeling. Namely, they, the company became exposed to real estate risk, and the idea that their risk modelers had was that it doesn't matter that we take on risk that home prices might fall, because they can never fall everywhere. Uh, they can fall in one city, but it won't matter to us. That's just one city, and it all averages out. But what actually happened after Greenberg left was the company took huge exposures toward real estate risk, and it, it fell everywhere. Home prices fell everywhere. Just exactly what they thought couldn't happen. Uh, so, the, um, the company was writing credit default swaps, which are, I told you about those before. They were taking the risk. They were insuring, basically, against defaults on companies whose uh, credit depended on the real estate market. They were also investing directly in real estate securities, in mortgage-backed securities that depended on the real estate market for their success. And when all this failed at once, the AIG was about to fail. That meant that the federal government uh, 
decided in 2008 to bail out AIG. And the total bailout bill, well, the total amount committed by the U.S. federal government was $182 billion. Uh, it didn't all actually get spent. It was $182 billion committed uh, to bail out AIG. That's a lot of money. I think that's the biggest bailout uh, anywhere <laughs> at any time. Uh, so, uh, a lot of people are angry about this. Uh, you know, part of this bailout came from what we called TARP. This is the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which was created under the Bush administration. And it was a proposal of Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson. Uh, and it was initially run by Paulson. Uh, but it was not just TARP. Uh, there was also loans from the Federal Reserve. Uh, it was a complicated string of things that were done to bail out AIG. So, why did they do that? Uh, why did the government bail out this insurance company? The, the, the main reason why they did so was their concern about systemic risk. It wasn't. Uh, I'll come back to uh, other kinds of bailouts of insurance companies, but the problem was that AIG, if it went under, all kinds of things would go wrong. All kinds of things would go wrong. All these insurance policies that it wrote on people's um, casualties, their their um, their travel insurance, their um, any of these policies would all now be subject to, to failure, because people who had these insurance would find that the company that they bought it through was disappearing. But it would go on even beyond that. Lots of other companies, investment companies, banks, would fail too, or may fail too, because they're uh, involved in some kind of business dealings with AIG, which would now become part of the AIG bankruptcy. If AIG failed, anybody who had any business with AIG would be starting to wonder, what's, gonna mean, what's this going to mean to me? AIG owes me money, or uh, uh, what's going to happen? And so, there was a worry that it would destroy the whole financial system. This was big enough to cause everybody to pull back, and if everybody pulls back, then the business world stops. It would be like a stampede for the exits. Everyone here is AIG goes under, and so many people do business with AIG. They decided it was intolerable, and so the government came up with the money massively and quickly. If you remember the story, Henry Paulson, who was Treasury Secretary, first went to Congress asking for a blank check. He didn't say to bail out AIG, but that's what he did. He got a sort of a blank check from Congress because the, the story was told, Paulson told the story that if we don't do this, if we let company, he didn't say AIG, was, he actually asked for the TARP money before the AIG bailout. But he said, if we don't do something to prevent a collapse, we could have the Great Depression again. And so nobody liked to hear that, but they believed him and they didn't know what else to do. And so uh, they, they, allowed, uh, they allowed the TARP money and they allowed uh, 
the Federal Reserve and uh, to, to bail out this company. Uh, but uh, some people misunderstand what this, in fact, means, though, for the shareholders in AIG. The AIG shareholders lost almost everything because the government arranged the bailout in such a way that uh, AIG got practically wiped out. Uh, the government took preferred shares in the company at a, um, at a very low price in exchange for helping the company survive. And that diluted down the other shareholders in the company into a very um, low status. The company lost over 90% of its shareholder value despite this uh, bailout. In, uh, in July of 2009, uh, AIG did a 1 to 20 split. Remember I told you about splits before? Usually they do, that's a reverse split. <laughs> Usually the stock goes up in a company and the shares are, that which originally sold for $30 a share are now selling for $100 a share and they think, well, that's too high a price per share, so let's do a three-for-one split and let's make every share into three shares. That's the usual split story. This was going the other way massively. They made every 20 shares into one share. So if you look at the price uh, recently, it's been something like you know, $30 or $40 a share. That's what we do on the stock exchange. We always like to keep it. It's an American tradition. Not so much true in other countries. They have different traditions about what is the preferred price about a stock. But, um, so AIG lost just, the shareholders lost just about everything, right? So uh, the public anger about a bailout of AIG uh, is really a little bit inappropriate because they, they lost almost everything. They could have lost everything. This company did not fail. It was bailed out and it survived but it lost almost everything. I think the real anger is not anger about the shareholders of AIG who lost almost everything. The real anger is that the business partners of AIG didn't lose anything. Notably, Goldman Sachs, which is a major partner uh, uh, taking the other side of contracts with AIG. It didn't lose a penny, all right? And well, why didn't they? Why did they they, but of course, it, Goldman Sachs was not being bailed out. It was not in danger. The, the, the government didn't know what to do with AIG because it felt that it was such a big company doing so many things that if we let them fail, who knows, Goldman Sachs might fail. And the government didn't know. Uh, they didn't know whether Goldman Sachs might fail because they didn't have the information, because the regulators had not collected such information. So they decided the only thing they could do responsibly was to keep AIG alive, somehow alive, as an insurance company. Maybe they lose almost all of their value but, uh, to the shareholders, but they keep going. So that's what happened. And, um, and AIG continues to this day. It survived after the bailout. Now, I wanted to talk about 
something else that many of you may not know uh, about insurance companies, uh, namely uh, that we do have something like deposit insurance for insurance companies. Now, do you know when you go into a bank, there'll be a little sign saying FDIC insured? You notice that when you go into a bank? They're required to post that. Uh, banking, bank accounts are insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation uh, up to a limit of $250,000 now. Um, and the reason we do that is we don't want uh, it's only for relatively small savers because $250,000 is not big time a lot of money. But we don't want innocent people who walk into a bank and put their money there to lose their money. So you wonder about insurance. Do we have something like that for insurance? Uh, yes, we do. Um, we have state insurance guarantee funds uh, that protect insurance companies. Uh, they're, very f they're not as old, though. They're the the uh, oldest insurance guarantee fund is 1941, and that's in New York. And um, this fund was the first, uh, but now virtually every state in the United States has these funds. Uh, the Connecticut got its first insurance guarantee fund in 1972. Uh, so uh, these are supposed to protect you as an individual if you uh, take out an insurance policy and then your insurance company, like AIG, blows up. Uh, so then you wonder, well, why didn't the insurance guarantee fund handle AIG? <laughs> okay, what do you have any idea what the answer is? Why do we need this special bailout? Well, maybe the answer is obvious. The insurance guarantee fund, like the FDIC, is to protect the little guy, right? F AIG was way too big for these state insurance funds. Uh, there's a limit to how much insurance how much you can collect from a state insurance fund if your insurance company goes under. Uh, and in New York, it's $500,000. And in Connecticut, it's the same. And these are two of the most generous states. Typically, in a state in the United States, uh, you only collect $300,000 maximum. Now, it may sound like a lot of money to you, but think of it this way. Suppose you bought a life insurance policy for your family, uh, what would you typically buy? Ever thought about it? Well, you have two children, okay, and you're thinking of sending them both to Yale or someplace like that. Uh, it's going to cost you like $500,000 right there, right? Just sending them to college. So if that's all you get in your in 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 your insurance, it's not not enough, not big. Uh, so these are small; they don't guarantee you enough. There's another thing about, uh, at least I know about the Connecticut uh, Insurance Guarantee Fund, and that is that uh, you can't play the trick that you do with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation insures bank accounts for $250,000, all right? But all you do is you put your money over many different banks. So if you've got two and a half million, you put it in ten different banks, all right? 
The FDIC will insure every one of those, so you can insure 2.5 million. But Connecticut, uh, the Connecticut uh, Insurance Guarantee Fund won't do that. They'll limit you to 500,000, no matter how many different policies you got. There's uh, another important difference between deposit insurance in banks and state insurance guarantee funds, at least in Connecticut. Uh, I know Connecticut does not allow a finance, a, an insurance company to advertise that they're insured. It's quite the opposite with deposit insurance, where the FDIC requires that they post that they're insured. So that's why you don't know about, <laughs> why you don't hear about this. Um, but there's a fundamental lesson I'm trying to get to with all of this, and that is that uh, you have to um, you have to look at the insurance company that you buy insurance from. It's still a, it's still a wild world out there in the sense that uh, if, the in, if you buy insurance from an insurance company and it goes under, um, well, you're protected up to 500,000, but beyond that, not. And you're supposed to watch out. Now, we also have state insurance regulators who are supposed to watch out that insurance companies are good, but they won't make good on you. Uh, so we have a Connecticut insurance department, for example, uh, which regulates insurance companies. Now, another interesting thing about insurance that separates it from finance is that uh, insurance is done by the state government. It's regulated, and the guarantee funds are state. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is a federal, it's a national insurance program, but the state insurance programs are, but the insurance is done entirely by the states. Uh, and this makes it difficult to do business as an insurance company because you have to be, you have 50 different regulators in the United States. The United States is a particularly difficult place to, uh, to, uh, to, to handle. Uh, so uh, that, that's because we had the, um, the McCarran-Ferguson Act. Uh, McCarran-Ferguson Act. in 1945, which specified that insurance regulation is entirely for the state governments. Um, and uh, so, uh, so, in the United States, uh, regulation of insurance is divided up across 50 different states, which is kind of makes it very difficult. It's very difficult because that's a lot of different regulator, regulators to deal with. One thing that we have is something called the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, um, which is a, uh, it's not a government organization, it's an association. Uh, without any constitutional or any government uh, definition, the NAIC. But what it does is it brings representatives from the different state governments, and they meet together and they decide on model legislation that each gov state government could adopt uh, to allow uh, insurance to, uh, to be standardized across different uh, state governments. Otherwise, we'd have a total, uh, total chaos in our, insurance, uh, uh, in our insurance regulation. 
Um, you might be aware that under the Dodd-Frank Act, which is the major legislation uh, that uh, was passed in 2010, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act creates a, net, a new federal insurance office. Uh, office. So it sounds like the federal government in the United States is getting into insurance. But in fact, no, it's not. The federal government doesn't have any real involvement in the insurance industry. It's all done, it's all regulated at the state level. Uh, all the well, it does have an involvement in a sense, because here's how it's going to work, apparently. The federal insurance office was created uh, to look at systemic risk of insurance. Because the AIG problem turned out to be a federal problem because it was so massive, the federal government doesn't want AIG bailouts to happen again. So, uh, the proposal was made by a number of people, well, why don't we regulate insurance at the national level? Other countries do that. Why don't we uh, do that? Uh, so, but the American tradition is too strong to leave, to make such a major change. So, what the Dodd-Frank Act did is it created this new office and the federal insurance office is going to collect information about insurance companies in order to discover which of them are proposing the kind of risk that AIG did, a risk that could bring down the whole system. So again, they're just looking at the problem that I highlighted at the beginning, that the whole insurance model assumes independence of risk, some kind of independence of risk so that pooling occurs. But if it's not really independent, then pooling isn't going to be successful. So here's what the Federal Insurance Office does, what it will do. It hasn't done anything yet, I suppose. It will monitor insurance companies for being posing systemic risks. And if it decides that there is a systemic risk, another AIG brewing, then the, the, this office can recommend uh, to another agency called the uh, uh, the Federal, the Financial Stability Oversight Commission, uh, Financial Stability Oversight Commission, created by Dodd-Frank, or people call it FSOC, uh, you can recommend that the insurance company be designated as a threat to the systemic, to the system of the United States. And then it would be, if in that extreme case, it would be put under the regulation of the Federal Reserve Board and it would be handled in bankruptcy like uh, along uh, by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So, uh, what Dodd-Frank has done is left the state-regulated insurance companies un unchanged except 
as regards systemic risks. And they have set up a procedure that would get the federal government involved if the federal insurance office concludes that a systemic risk is happening. Uh, and the Dodd-Frank Act says very clearly, we will not bail out another insurance company the way we did AIG. Uh, so, uh, we can get back into the details of what might happen in another AIG circumstance, but uh, it's not supposed to be um, the same thing. Well, I wanted to mention that uh, there are other countries that have insurance guarantee funds, uh, like the uh, insurance guarantee funds that I mentioned in uh, regards to Connecticut and New York. Uh, but they're newer and they're not as, uh, in, in many cases, they're newer and the, they're not as uh, effective. So I wanted to mention the, um, uh, the, in the country of China, they have just created a um, uh, China Insurance Protection Fund. Uh, it's like one of our state uh, guarantee funds. Uh, but it has a limit, uh, uh, the amount that it limit, that it will, uh, that it will uh, insure is limited to 50,000 yuan, or about uh, uh, $6,000. So, that's much less developed. It's $500,000 in the United States. In China, it's, at least they've got it now. Until, last, uh, until to, uh, 2008, there wasn't even any such uh, insurance guarantee fund. Uh, so, so, anyway, the, The Fabozzi book talks about various kinds of insurance, and I, I was going to say something about them. Uh, types of insurance. The biggest uh, type, the, mo the biggest category of insurance privately offered is life insurance, which uh, in 2009 was almost $5 trillion. Health insurance, privately offered health insurance, is actually smaller um, than that, uh, and property and casualty insurance is only about 1.3 trillion. Nonetheless, these are big industries. You go through Fabozzi and it will describe the different types of life insurance. There's term insurance, which is uh, insurance that insures you for a certain term uh, of time. It, it terminates after one year, but it's typically automatically renewable. Then there's whole life, which gives you uh, insurance uh, in over a long time interval and builds cash value over the years. Uh, and there's other types. There's variable life, which has no guaranteed cash value, but invests in an account uh, for you. And, uh, uh, and the insurance then uh, uh, has an uncertain payout. Uh, so. Insurance goes back to the 16, uh, life insurance goes back to the 1600s, as I was saying, because uh, that was a, the most important kind of insurance. The most important risk that people faced was the death of a parent. Uh, 
So uh, it's funny, many of these things develop. I, I mentioned that the uh, first the multinational corporation and the first stock exchange ap appeared in the 1600s, the same time as the first insurance policies appeared. The first health insurance policy was proposed in 1694 uh, by Elder Chamberlain. And the first U.S. health insurance uh, plan was the Franklin Health Assurance Company of Massachusetts, uh, which started in 1850. I wanted to talk a little bit about health insurance because it's something that has uh, been an important problem. Uh, and the many countries have adopted national health insurance plans. They've not allowed, the government has come in fundamentally and, and has actually required insurance uh, for everyone. The government has not allowed insurance to proceed on, along private lines. The United States, however, has had a tradition of more private or free enterprise and has tried merely to regulate insurance and not to impose it as a government uh, plan. But there have been problems in the United States in that many people do not get insurance. Uh, because if you leave private insurance, uh, if, you, if, you if you don't have a government plan on insurance, you start to deal with problems of moral hazard or selection bias that encourage many people not to buy insurance. If you think that the people who buy health insurance are the sick ones and you're not sick, you're not going to buy insurance. Uh, Moreover, there were other problems of moral hazard with insurance. One problem was if you have a private health insurance plan, the doctors have maybe an incentive to milk the insurance company, right? They can order too many procedures. Doctors don't care about you, the patient, living a long time. They just have an incentive to do a lot of procedures. So they won't do preventative medicine to protect your life. Well, they will if they have moral character, but the financial incentives are wrong. Uh, so the government in the United States has um, tried repeatedly to do things that would improve this problem. But it, see, this is what I'm getting back in the initial point, that designing insurance is a matter of um, invention. We have to figure out some system that incentivizes doctors right, that incentivizes people to sign up. Both sick people and healthy people all sign up. Uh, and, and things are done right. So how do we get that? I was going to give some milestones in, um, uh, in this. One was the um, HMO Act. The government is always getting involved in trying to... This is 1973. HMO stands for Health Maintenance Organization. A health maintenance organization is, is an insurance plan that uh, tries to deal with the moral hazard problem. Doctors are paid salaries. They are not paid for procedures. So doctors are employees of the HMO, and uh, they have no incentive to put you, give you an operation that you don't need, because their pay won't go up. The HMO Act of 1973 required employers with 25 or more employees to offer their employees a federally certified HMO plan. Okay. So one of the 
<laughs> One of the first HMOs, I'll say this because you know about them, was the Yale Health Plan. Uh, actually, the Yale Health Plan uh, dates to, I'll, I'll say YHP for Yale Health Plan, 1971. It actually got started before the HMO Act. Uh, that's because uh, people here at Yale were thinking along the same There was talk then already about the importance of preventative me medicine. And Charles Taylor, who was the Yale provost, uh, liked the idea. I know it was being talked about in Congress, but Yale didn't even wait for the government to require it. We did it in advance. Uh, so, uh, the, the, quoting Taylor, social responsibility of the university extends to the pioneering and the demonstration of improved methods for the provision of health services to population groups. So, this was, uh, the, the concept is that it, it was a Yale community. Everyone at Yale belongs, or has the option of belonging. Uh, and uh, uh, you have a primary care uh, person there who has, an, uh, who, whose in instruction is to preserve your long-term health. Another milestone uh, was the emergency, the emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, 1986, or MTALA. Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, 1986. What this did, see, so many people in the United States have no health insurance. And, and it's because of this problem I'm telling you about. There was the moral hazard problem the selection bias problem. People say, I'm not going to buy it. It's too expensive because I'm not sick. But that, that, that defeats the whole concept of it. You're supposed to buy it whether you're sick or not. Okay? And uh, so there we had so many people that didn't have insurance. So what would happen when they got hit by a bus <laughs> out there? They're lying on the street. Well, people would bring them into the hospital, and the, typically hospitals would sew them up and take care of them. But uh, they often gave really bad service because they weren't getting paid for this person. Uh, so the, the, what the MTALA did in 1986 is it requires hospitals to, to take you in and take care of you. Uh, anyone needing emergency treatment, according to MTALA, can go to any hospital with an emergency room and be taken care of. So that's the law. So, we do have national health insurance in that sense. This is an example of what's called an unfunded mandate. The government just says the hospitals have to do it. How do they pay for it? Well, that's their problem. <laughs> the government isn't offering them any money to do it. So, what the hospitals do is they say, okay, suppose you get hit by a bus, all right? If you can't talk, they'll just treat you. If you can talk, they're in there asking you to sign papers promising to pay, pay for it, eventually. So, you go deeply into debt. Uh, that's one thing that happens. So, MTALA didn't really solve the health problem. We still have the moral hazard problem, the selection bias problem, preventing people from signing up. Uh, so, uh, uh, and we still have the, you know, the, the HMO Act was supposed to put us all did I spell uh, maintenance? I spelled this wrong. Uh, the, um, 
the, the, the HMO Act is supposed to get us all into HMOs. Well, you are all in an HMO because you're part of a community that gives it to you. But uh, it, it, there's over 40 million uninsured Americans, and not even in any insurance plan. And people who don't have any health insurance miss diagnostic procedures. They get diabetes. They get high blood pressure. And so, they're not treated until they're flat out and they're in the emergency room. And that's not the way to handle these conditions. So, it's really not good what has happened. But that brings us to the 2010 Health Care Acts that were uh, created by President Obama. There's actually two of them. I won't, I won't write their names, but. Uh, so, in 2010, uh, in 2010, the U.S. government passed a landmark uh, pair of bills that um, were addressed to solving the selection bias and moral hazard problems and, and reduce the number of people who are uninsured dramatically. So, this is what the government did. It's setting up new, uh, it hasn't happened yet, but the procedures are there to set it up. They're creating new insurance exchanges that will offer insurance to be purchased by the, by the general public. And they're going to require, they're not going to require you to buy the insurance. They're going to put a tax penalty on you if you don't. In other words, you, you don't have to buy insurance because you're a student here and you've got insurance. But suppose you're just out there in the world, you're not affiliated with any, uh, with any insurance plan. Then you will actually have to pay a penalty of something like $700 a year if you don't. So the idea is you, you, you pretty much are going to do it because you don't want to pay the penalty. That solves the selection bias problem. Because the, the, by forcing everyone to sign up, insurance companies no longer have the problem that only sick people sign up. Everyone signs up. So they can lower their premiums because you know, it doesn't cost them as much per person when they've got healthy people now. So there's a penalty for individuals in not buying insurance, and there's a penalty for companies who do not buy insurance for their employees. That's another part of the selection bias problem. So we get almost everyone covered by insurance, and that will bring the, the, the cost down. Moreover, insurance companies that are on the new insurance exchanges cannot say no for pre-existing conditions. This happens all the time now. If you already are sick, an insurance company is going to offer you a really high, uh, they'll say we'll insure you, but we'll, we'll demand a really high uh, monthly premium. So you, you say, I can't afford that because um, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Now that won't happen. Uh, I wanted to conclude with some thoughts about uh, the insurance industry and, and where it's going. And uh, we've made, it seems painfully slow to me. I talked about insurance being invented in the 1600s, that's 400 years ago. And still, we had over 40 million Americans with no health insurance. Pretty obvious that we should have it. But we have problems making it work, and we still have problems uh, that uh, uh, 
um, and es especially in less developed countries. So, uh, um, let me mention the, the um, another insurable risk, which which was be taken uh, care of very badly. You know that last year there was a terrible earthquake in Haiti. The uh, the loss of life in Haiti and the loss of damages was generally not insured. Uh, the uh, uh, there were efforts to get more insurance to Caribbean countries. In uh, 2007, the Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility was trying to promote insurance uh, for the Caribbean region, but it had reached only $8 million in insurance as of the Haiti earthquake. Uh, what, what that meant is that most buildings were not insured in Haiti, and that meant not only that people couldn't collect when the building collapsed, but it also meant that the building really collapsed because the, the, uh, there, there were no insurance companies imposing building codes and standards. If an insurance company is bearing the risk, they will then go in and make sure that the building is constructed right, uh, and so the risk is, um, is dealt with properly. Um, in contrast, uh, the, a similar catastrophe in the United States uh, was the Hurricane Katrina, which uh, uh, destroyed much of the city of New Orleans. But in contrast, uh, many or most people in New Orleans had insurance on their house, uh, and studies show that the insurance, while there were complaints, the insurance actually worked, and most people. Uh, uh, I think well, uh, about 200,000 homes were severely damaged, and uh, payment was about $40,000 per home. Uh, still, there were problems in New Orleans. When, when New Orleans came, there were, there were two kinds of risk. One was wind damage, and the other one was flood damage. Uh, and it turns out, I, I was saying earlier that an insurance policy tries to define the uh, the, the loss very carefully and precisely because it's going to end up costing the insurance company billions of dollars. They got to get it exactly right. But they had different coverage for, for wind loss and flood loss. Now, the problem is when you have a hurricane, which is it? What was, what, what was the problem that hit your house? Because it was both wind and flood. Um, so there was rankling and uh, there was uh, wrangling over the uh, definition. Another problem, I'm almost done here. I just wanted to talk about another kind of risk that worries us a great deal that, uh, uh, that tends not to be covered well by a uh, traditional insurance company, and that's terrorism risk. Okay? Most insurance policies traditionally have excluded acts of war or terrorism from coverage, and they, they feel that they have to exclude it because those are correlated risks, right? If, uh, if the uh, if there's a war, it's going to cause the probability, they're not independent probabilities of damage. That, uh, and so insurance companies have excluded it. But it turns out that these are some of the risks that we worry most about. Uh, and so um, what, we, what we had in the United States was TRIA, which was the Terror, Terrorism Risk Insurance Act in 2000, 
Well, it started out in um, 2002, then it's been renewed. Uh, the Act uh, uh, requires insurance to offer terrorism insurance, uh, but it also agrees that the government will pay some of the amount uh, of losses if there is a major national catastrophe. So it becomes a a government uh, uh, a government uh, funded or for in the case of a huge, let's say, systemic problem caused by a massive increase in terrorism, the government will, will take up the major losses. So that is another important step that we now have insurance against terrorism. It was something that had been excluded because of the systemic problem. The last thing I'll mention is catastrophe bonds. Uh, this is an um, a insurance-like institution that has been developing slowly. Uh, a catastrophe bond is a bond that is used to finance the, the management of large risks. I'll give you an example. The Mexican government, in May of 2006, uh, issued bonds totaling $160 billion, uh, which need to be repaid only if Mexico does not have uh, an earthquake, a major earthquake. So, if you invest in Mexican catastrophe bonds, or CAT bonds, they're called, then you are helping Mexico against a systemic big risk. If Mexico City is hit by another earthquake, like the one that they had uh, was about 20 years ago, it would be a huge cost to Mexico. Uh, the Mexican government has to it, 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 the Mexican government is not big enough to manage such a risk effectively. It's better if the if risk is spread out over the whole world. So this is an example of a kind of uh, uh, risk management contract that extends the scope of insurance, actually making it more financial. Because these bonds are actually sold and put into portfolios, and it doesn't look like insurance. It looks like a, a bond that uh, deals with the uh, that deals with the insurance risk in a financial way. So these are some of the things I'm about done. Let me just say um, uh, the insurance industry manages important risks that matter to our life, risk to our health, to our children, uh, uh, to our businesses, to our way, things that we do. And it still suffers from various imperfections. That we can see, we're, we're just, it seems like we're just dealing with some of the problems. I mentioned the, these new in innovations, but there are still problems in the, um, in the insurance industries. I, I could just mention a few of them. One of them is that we don't well insure against changes in probabilities. So, for example, recently in the American South, there have been, for unknown reasons, there's been a growing mold problem. The funguses are growing in houses, and if, uh, if you can damage a house, and it has to be torn down. So the probability of this risk is going up. So insurance companies are raising their rates, reflecting the probability, but there was no insurance against raising the rates. Also, hurricane risk seems to be going up, right? Because we've seen because of global warming, hurricane risk is going up. So insurance companies have been raising their 
uh, insurance premiums for that reason, but that, uh, that, uh, that um, is not a risk that's insured against. So if you buy a house down in Florida and then hurricanes get much worse, you might not be able to afford your insurance policy. We also have problems that insurance policies are not indexed to inflation. We have life annuities. Uh, I, hadn't, I haven't really discussed those, but, but they're policies that would benefit from inflation indexation. And so th these are still some examples. I think that the insurance industry is a, let me just conclude with this thought. It's like any other industry. It deals with very important real problems that require technological solutions. The solutions are difficult and we are slowly moving ahead and improving our ability to deal with these problems. Uh, but it's a science, it's a technology, it's got a long ways to go. And I'm predicting that over your careers in the next half century or more, we'll see a lot of advances, a lot of changes in the insurance industry, like the changes I talked about here. Uh, and these changes will lead to uh, a much better uh, lives for all of us. So I'm talking about efficient markets next period, which is a favorite topic of mine. It's about why you can't beat the market. Uh, or maybe you can. <laughs> That's what I like, it, like about it.